Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of the Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more of these episodes. I am the author of the newly released book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. It is a historical fiction tracing a possible yet plausible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we're speaking with Joe Marino, and he is a well-known Shroud researcher and has a very interesting connection to the Shroud. And today we're going to be talking about some of the uh, some of the things around the carbon fourteen dating and other uh, dating aspects and uh, and what have you. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Joe. Joe has a uh, a BA in theological studies from St. Louis University, and he's a longtime synodologist, which is someone that studies the Shroud of Turin. He's researched, written, and lectured extensively on the Shroud since 1977, and he currently works at the uh, Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. As early as 1977, he became fascinated through a book he read, and since then he has been hooked on the further study of the Shroud. And I hate to say it, that it applies to all of us. I am now hooked as well. But in 1997, uh, Marino received a call from Sue Benford, who informed him of her spiritual insights about the Shroud. And after many discussions via phone and email about the Shroud, he became he began to experience God in a whole new way. He felt powerfully drawn to leave the monastery and pursue Shroud research and other spiritual paths with Benford. So it is his hope and desire that their work and his work uh, can get this message across, and it is his belief that this is the destiny to which he has been called, which is why he's been given the passion that he has for the Shroud of Turin. With that, thank you, Joe. Uh, so good to have you here today. Thanks, Guy. It's always good to be with you. Absolutely, and uh, looking forward to our discussion. So anyway, let's get started. So um, uh, now you've come up with a uh, what's called a uh, an invisible reweave theory on on the shroud and why it may have affected the dating of the shroud that was done by the carbon 14 testing that we all kind of know about mm -hmm. from 1988 so tell us what that reweave theory is okay and just one correction in the bio i'm happily retired from ohio state uh, university uh, uh, now uh, that's been a few years and that course enables me to do more shroud work which is part of the idea of me retiring Anyway, um, yeah, when when uh, when I first got together with Sue, she um, noticed um, what she thought were some irregularities in the, the C14 corner. And as, a, as you mentioned, she also had some spiritual insights and we started um, investigating that. And um, so we the first thing we did was was send pictures of the C14 sample to three textile experts, but did not tell them that they were pictures of the shroud because once people know it's the shroud, you know, bias can creep in and whatnot. So we just showed them the close-ups of the pictures and said, just, we, we'd like your observations on this. And all three independently, um, including one, one here in Columbus who was a, a he was born, I think, in France and, and was a tailor in Columbus, Ohio. And um, she visited him in person. The other two we did by mail. Um, 
but all three independently said that they felt that the area had been manipulated in some way. So we thought, well, that's, that's interesting. So um, we later got quite a few other people um, that independently weighed in and, and textile experts and chemists and different scientists and stuff um, that seemed to indicate that they thought there was repairs or manipulations or anything. So uh, I've written quite a few papers over the years and, and I now have, there's three, there's a technique that was known in France called French invisible reweaving. And interestingly, um, at the time that the, we believe the, the repairs were done, and let me say it, it, it's almost universally mentioned in, in articles and podcasts when people talk about it, that they think that the, the poor Claire nuns who, who put the patches in after the fire of 1532, uh, in 1534, they put in patches after the fire. And most of the people think that that they did the French invisible reweave, which I don't think they did because I don't, I think that's a very, it's a very specialized technique. And I don't think they would have been talented enough to, to do that. And it's important to remember that it, at, at that time, the shroud was actually owned by Margaret of Austria, who's, who was part of the House of Savoy. And, um, she had access to the uh, the French weavers in her court. And so we believe one or more of her uh, weavers in her court actually um, performed the, the, the repair. Um, in 1508, she did her will and, and had something in there about giving it uh, it, the, the language I think is not clear is either a piece of the shroud or the whole shroud um, to a church. And then she died in 1530. And then the, the fire was in 1532. So um, we think that the, the invisible reweave was probably done, you know, probably shortly before she died in 1530. Um, and, the, the French invisible reweave um, is a technique that um, it, it, it involves a really a tedious and time consuming thread by thread restoration. Now, you know, when, when Sue and I f first thought that there was a repair, we, we kind of thought that, you know, uh, uh, like a, the first century cloth was here and then the 16th cl uh, century cloth was there and they were next to each other. But then later on, we 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 revised it, and then French invisible reweaving is would it be thread by thread interweaving. Um, and in fact, Ray Rogers did find um, later on did find cotton inter, interspersed with with linen. So I've got three uh, along the way. I've I've um, discovered three different manuals uh, of how to do French invisible. Uh, reweaving and there's some real interesting quotes about there but and I have those in my my most recent paper that I put up on academia and, and they're saying you know people if you do it well people won't won't be able to tell that you've done it and and there is some question about um, you know some experts say that it you might make it invisible on uh, 
on the top side, but not on the back side. But in that technique, there are no knots. So when you look at the backside, you're not going to see knots. Um, and then most importantly, I mean, I, I think the the evidence is, if you look at it overall, it's it's pretty compelling. And I think the the most important um, aspect of it is that it's been confirmed chemically. Um, you know, if, if it's a unless you're an expert, you're you're really not going to be able to tell. Uh, with the naked eye if, if something there. So you have to go to the chemical level. And, and I have quotes from Adler and Rogers and different people that that suggest that there is, in fact, um, an invisible reweave there. Yeah, it is fascinating. And, and uh, uh, to your point, um, when, it, when I first heard about the reweave, I've, I've had like suits, a hole in a suit repaired. And um, and the, the the fix is not bad on the one side, but then if you look at the other side, then you can see that there was there was like a patch of yeah. material, kind of like in your first example, there was a patch of material that was somehow woven in. But what you're saying is that the the re the invisible or this French invisible reweave is actually thread by thread. So it sounds like you're, you know, you're joining, I don't know if you're cutting or whatever you're doing, but you're cutting and joining two different materials at some point. And then that new material then gets woven back in and uh, uh, into the, into the original cloth. And, um, and so there's actually two things or maybe even more uh, going on. There's actually the connection of the two threads so that you can't see that connection. And then the second piece, I guess, is then the actual weave pattern that then uh is replicated and so that you can't even see the mm -hmm. weave the new weave pattern with that new thread and um and and that is uh that definitely is an, a very interesting task for somebody to take on and to mm -hmm. your point as well i don't think the poor claire's sisters would have been yeah uh capable enough that would i mean they may have been great sewers and tailors and whatever but i think you're right they have to ha the person that did it actually has to be very very proficient at at yeah. doing that that specific weave right and i wouldn't as i mentioned i don't, i wouldn't be surprised if there was a a team of weavers um mm -hmm. rather than just one person working on working on it and i should also point out that um there was a swiss archaeologist named uh, maria grazia ciliato um who thinks that there were she lists in a in her in a book of hers which and i have the quote in my paper she listed like five or six different other type of repair techniques. And if you think about it over the centuries, you know, the shroud being handled and, and being in the, in the care of different people, it wouldn't be surprising that um, different techniques wouldn't be used over the centuries to help keep up the stability of the cloth. So not only did we we think there was an invisible reweave, but we, we came to believe that there were um, other types of, of repairs as well, which makes it a little harder to um, figure out who did what and when, but um, the chemical, again, the chem chemical evidence suggests there, there were repairs in that area. Yeah, it's interesting too. And so one of the things you said was interesting as well um, is that if there was a reweave and you sent three sample uh, pictures of both sides to three separate textile experts, 
and uh, uh, and they were and their results were that there might have been some manipulation on those corners there. Well, um, back in those that this was in 2000, so we didn't have yet. We we do now. There are pictures of the backside of the samples, but we we didn't have ac access to them back mm. then. We just had the front side. So, but they believed that the, um, there was certainly was was manipulation on on the. Uh, on the front side, and uh, I checked with uh, Pam Moon, who who has done some good research. Um, actually, sent uh, both you and I some um, links to pictures mm. of of the backside of all three um, samples that the labs had, and she she certainly believes she and she consulted a, a an expert um, textile expert named Donna Campbell from uh, Irish. Uh, what's the name of it? Uh, Thomas Ferguson Limited, mm. and um, she she believes that there there were um, uh, there was not only an invisible reweave but a contamination that might have um, the the part of the reason for the uh, reweave was to cover up um, mold that mm. resulted from different camp uh, contaminations that happened over the centuries as well. Yeah, exactly. So she had um, and. Uh, a couple of things going on, but tell us why uh, the corners or why there might've been a reweave in those corners uh, of the shroud. Yeah. Well, you can see if you look at different uh, engravings and whatnot and illustrations of, of um, exhibitions over the years. I have one uh, right oh, they're, they're great. Yeah. The, the, the bishops are always holding up the top part of the shroud by the corners. And then, those corners had a couple of the corners um, had some had areas cut out uh, to to give as relics. So once you cut on a a fabric like that, if you don't you know restore it properly, it it begins to fray even more. So unfortunately, the 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 main reason. Um, that they only took one sample, which was a crucial mistake for the C14, because you don't have, they were gonna, it was suggested that they take it from multiple parts of the cloth. I mean, the, the shroud's 14 and a half feet long and three and a half feet wide. It's a big cloth. If you take one little sample from a corner that has probably been repaired, you have absolutely no guarantee that it's representative of the, of, of the rest of the cloth. And no matter how much the skeptics argue, one sample is not sufficient. And it just isn't done on, a, on any object that I'm aware of. You have to have control samples. Oh, and get this as an aside. Um, the Michael Tite of the British Museum told the C14 labs the dates of the control samples. Now, the one of the main the, the main idea I think of a control sample is to make sure that these labs um, equipment is working properly. Okay, so if you give them three samples control samples of known dates, and all three labs get the control sample dates wrong, you obviously can't trust what they get with the shroud. Now the problem becomes if you if you give them the dates of the control samples. And I'm not saying this happened, but there's the possibility 
that they will then manipulate the data to say, oh, yes, our, our equipment, who's going to know? Our, our equipment was perfectly fine on the um, control samples. Well, that's, no, that's not how it's done. You don't let the labs determine whether their equipment is accurate. That's the whole idea of a control sample. And so that was another big problem. But I'm getting off on a tangent yeah. on a soapbox here. But anyway, um, so yeah, the, the, the corners were, were cut on to um, give away as relics. And so, and they were always held by that corner. So, oh, and then Ganella picked uh, that one corner the, where the C-14 sample was taken because in 1973, that's where the, the so-called Reyes sample, that's Dr. Gilbert Reyes was given a, a, a small sample in that corner to, for textile analysis. And they decided to take the C-14 sample from that area because that area was already cut on. And they, they figured, well, we, let's not cut any, any additional spots since this, but that's, that's just bad science. It's just yeah. bad science. So I yeah. think just on that single, the fact that it was taken from one sample, uh, one sample site alone um, disqualifies the, the validity of the results. Now the, uh, the other side will argue that because the, apparently because they're happy with the results, but it, from a pure scientific point of view, that was just bad science. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's hold our thought, our, our, our talking on that, because uh, uh, there's a couple of other things that, uh, that I think also play in here. Uh, so first of all, uh, we talked about the uh, what the French individual re reweave is, um, and that it's not visible on either side. And, and, um, and, and, uh, and, and that seems to be true based on the based on the, the photos that uh, that Pam sent. Um, now there is a there are a couple of other theories. So what we're trying to do is the carbon fourteen uh, came out with a date of the entire cloth based on this tiny sample from potentially a contaminated, manipulated corner of the cloth of twelve sixty to thirteen ninety. And uh, so what that means is if the if the actual radiocarbon uh, ratios and and mechanism and 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 measurements were done correctly, then that means that either the the cloth is from that time period, twelve sixty to thirteen ninety, or there was contamination or manipulation, or there might have been another uh, theory, which is uh, which is the Robert uh, Rucker uh, neutron absorption theory. So uh, let's talk about that one, and then we can talk about uh, some things with Pam Moon as well. Uh, maybe in one or two sentences, uh, tell us what Robert Rucker kind of came up with and how that may differ then from what the uh, in, invisible reweave might be. Okay. So um, Bob's theory is that there was um, uh, an emission of, I guess, neutrons. I get lost in yeah, all these. It's um... neutrons. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yep. So uh, there was an emission of neutrons um that was emitted from the body um for all intents and purposes um you know at the point of resurrection i i think he he's very careful with his language because you know he talks about he has a scientist hat and a, he is a christian so but he you know he talks about taking off his christian hat and putting on a scientific hat and i i think it's a kind of a hard uh uh dichotomy to to balance properly but anyway 
Um, so he believes that um, based on calculations, he's an expert, he's a nuclear engineer and quite good with calculations and things. And he's been doing various computer calculations since I think about 2014. And he's determined that um, based on where where the shroud would have been in, a, in the tomb and also the sidarium, which he thinks was to the side, that the neutron emissions uh, skewed um, the C14 date. And, and in fact, that's the, the Sidarium of Oviedo dated to a different uh, dates to like 700. Um, and he thinks that that's consistent with his theory that if it was off to the side, it would have recently received a different amount of, uh, of neutrons as opposed to the shroud. Um, so he thinks that not only did the neutrons um, cause the image, but actually skewed the C14 date. And he believes his calculations um, are consistent and, and more or less prove that, but the, un, until we do some additional actual hands-on testing of the shroud, it's really only a, a, a hypothesis. And um, I, I don't think it can be really, I don't think there's gonna be a consensus on that hypothesis being true until there's um, additional testing. But so his his theory explains both the image formation and the skewing of the C14 date where where I'm coming from is I'm just I'm not looking at image formation at all with this theory. I'm just looking at why the, the C14 dating came out medieval as opposed to first century if the shroud is authentic. Yeah. So the uh, and the and the difference is what you're kind of saying, which. I, and the, and the thing is, they're they're both. I think they're great. They're both great theories or hypotheses. And um, so, in, in your case, what's happening is you have new material with a new date being mixed with old material with an old date, and that then the average of the two may have then led to the uh, the carbon fourteen dating of the twelve sixty to thirteen ninety. Mm -hmm. The Rucker neutron absorption theory is then where neutrons were somehow bombarded into the atoms that were, or the carbon atoms that were there, and maybe there's nitrogen atoms as well. And, and that then led to a higher proportion of the carbon-14, right. which then led to then the, the more recent dating of the, uh, right. of the shroud. Um, and I, I'm wondering, do you think uh, do you think it's possible that uh, both theories could be uh, uh, partially right, or um, I mean, and and could coexist on the same material, or do you um, think it's exclusive? Yeah, Bob. According to Bob's calculations, and I don't remember the details, but he thinks that his theory uh, proves because of a couple factors. Um, he thinks that if his theory is right the invisible reweave theory uh, hypothesis cannot be right. Mm. So that's part of his, his theory that again, that, that would be something that um, would have to be tested, but um, you know, I, I just say, you know, 
there's there's empirical evidence for their invisible reweave that's I think pretty solid, and you have to explain it. You've got you've got all the ingredients in that corner. I mean, Rogers found a, a dye, cotton, and a morden. Um, and other people have confirmed, you know, believe that as well. So you've you've got to explain why you have all the ingredients for a repair, but then and then and how do you conclude that there's not a repair? You have to explain the fact, the scientific facts that suggest or indicate a repair. So, Mm. you know, it's, it's, it 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 depends on where you're coming from. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I I mean, you know, I, uh, I'm fascinated by both of the theories, but uh, you know, it it would be hard for me to believe that the Jews uh, of that time would have used a cloth uh, for, because it needs to be ceremonially clean and ceremonially clean means it has to be a hundred percent linen. It can't be, you know, 50% or 20% mm-hmm. cotton and 80% linen. It has to be as close as possible to a hundred percent. And yet Ray Rogers did find those cotton, mm-hmm. you know, cotton threads in there. So it would be hard to believe that there would be that cotton contamination coming from, uh, you know, going back all the way mm-hmm. to the original cloth. Now, right. um, uh, Pam Moon, uh, who we've mentioned, uh, she's actually, you know, she's done a ton of research. And uh, and one of the things that I found fascinating from one of her pieces of uh, research is the contamination that also uh, has been found in the in the corners in terms of potentially mold, potentially different water sources and stuff like that. Um, how does how would that contamination potentially affect the uh, the dating or even the the need for the uh, invisible reweave? Yeah, I'm not sure it it, it would in itself um, skew the date. Uh, it possibly would. I guess it, it depends on the the cleaning techniques. The labs claim that they they clean clean the samples, um, but I think I think it the mold or contamination would would have been more of a factor just from the aesthetic point of view so mm-hmm. um uh, you know she she seems to think that the the, the invisible reweave would have kind of uh, done two tasks at once fix the the repair that was needed and also um make it more pleasing to the eye in terms of covering up the previous um mold and contamination so that you can't you you could no longer see it so that's yeah. where i think she's coming from with that yeah well and i think too if there was um you know water in there or mold in there that would also certainly uh at least in my opinion would weaken the cloth potentially cause it more make it more likely to fray and uh, if it's more likely to fray it's more likely to, to need to be repaired and so therefore, mm-hmm. then the repair uh, would be, uh, you know, more likely to have taken place just because mm-hmm. it uh, it was more likely to have been uh, damaged through through the mold, through the water and then through the handling that took place over the centuries. Right. If, if your uh, viewers want to check out some of Pam's papers um, and, and just a note there, they have a lot of pictures so that they take a, a few minutes to to. Uh, 
is it download or upload? Download. download. Yeah, download. <laughs> um, it takes a few minutes to download. But anyway, her site is um, uh, www.shroudofturinexhibition.com. One word, shroudofturinexhibition.com. And she's got uh, a lot of good papers there. And there's also a, a really good paper there by uh, Donna Campbell of the uh, Thomas Ferguson Limited and her views on the... Um, the fact that she thinks there what there was a repair there. Mm, yeah, interesting. Yeah, she's Pam has done some amazing stuff, and uh, and then definitely one on on there was one on the contaminations, and that was kind of what I was referring to. And she's found seven different sources of contamination mm. uh, uh, that uh, are are probable uh, based on you know the history of the cloth and other markings that you can see on the cloth. Um, all right. Well, fantastic. Anything uh, before we kind of talk about the the infamous card, carbon fourteen testing? Anything else we want to say about the uh, invisible reweave? Um, I again, I would. There's just so many details. It's hard. I've been working on this theory off and on for you know twenty years. Um, I did recently post on academia.edu. Um, my most recent version of the paper, I think it's like 66 pages and I have 30 illustrations and about 90 references. Mm. So it's, it's pretty up to date. Um, I can't think of the, my, my, my link, um, off the top of my head, but if you go to academia and their search engine is not the best and, um, uh, a friend yeah. of mine notified me this morning that their yearly fee just went up, I think, from 100 to 200, which I'm not thrilled about considering yeah. their basic searching capabilities are not very good. <laughs> um, well, maybe think, they'll use that extra money to improve it, but you're so uh, right. I, I hope so. Very... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, think, I guess yeah. on academia.edu, then search under Joe Marino and then uh, uh, Invisible Reweave. And, and I'm sure that that would come up with that paper hopefully with their, yeah. their search engine. I think what I can do is if, if people have trouble finding it, I'll, I'll give my email here and um, uh, they can email me and I can send them the link. My email is jmarino240 at aol.com. That's J-M-A-R-I-N-O 240 at aol.com. So if people have trouble finding that link, just send me an email and, uh, and I'll send it to you. Fantastic. Um, and we'll repeat that link uh, towards the end. All right. So uh, let's get down to the in, the uh, the infamous uh, carbon-14 dating. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting how the labs, uh, it almost seemed like their purpose was to debunk the uh, the authenticity of the shroud. And and in the meantime, there's been so many different things that the, that that testing did wrong. And um, and there's been a ton of different discussions on various groups on Google, and um, and it's it's just amazing as to you know everything that went wrong. Let's first talk about the uh, the sample and the sample taking. You mentioned there was um, uh, uh, you know some of the problems with that, but let's just go back and and re reiterate some of the problems that uh, that there were with the sampling and and how then the sample was then even sent out to the labs and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they they had a big planning meeting in Turin in 1986, September 29th 
through October 1st. It was, it was over three days. And, you know, the, the C-14 people were invited. Some people from STERP were there. Uh, obviously, the Italian authorities, um, uh, an Italian group called uh, some, some um, I forget the name of it. It was an Italian civic group. And because even though the, the, um, it belonged to the Catholic Church at that point, because it was something about Italian jurisdiction or something, um, an Italian group, civic group was in it. And they made, they made the people later during the, the C-14 testing itself turn the lights down and Regi and other people were saying, we could hardly see what we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it was just, it was a disaster from beginning to end, but in, they, they were supposed to establish a protocol back in that meeting in 1986, ticket for multiple sample, uh, multiple areas, multiple labs. And then they, they, they had other, several other protocols that they, put forth. And then when it came time to take the sample on April 21st, 1988, they ignored everything that they had done, including the whole three-day meeting in Turin. And Regi and Ganella argued for an hour and a half where they were going to take the sample from. It's like, why did you have a three-day meeting? And now you're arguing the day of the sampling, where are you supposed to take it from? You know, so as I said, they only took the one sample because it was next to the Reyes sample, which had already been cut. <coughs> Excuse me, already been cut. Um, and then they, as I said, they gave the dates of the control samples to the labs. Um, the labs were not supposed to um, consult with one another, but the evidence shows that they did. Um, it. It was just a mess. And I um, I attended a, a symposium in, in Rome in 1993. And there was a French statistician there named uh, Philippe Boursier de Carbone, spelled C-A-R-B-O-N, ironically. <laughs> and he listed um, 15 points of failure in the, um, the procedures that the, the labs did. And I'm going to just read those real quick because these are... These are important to hear. One, absence of a formal report of the sampling. Two, absence of a video archive on the final steps of the sample's packaging. Three, in the official reports, contradictions about the cutting and weight of the samples by people in charge of sampling. Four, breaches of the protocol initially planned for the operation of dating. Five, rejection of the usual procedure of double blind test. Six, refusal of the interdisciplinary documentation, which is usual in the procedures for radiocarbon dating. Seven, exclusion of acknowledged specialists in the Shroud, particularly American scientists who participated in previous works of the Shroud of Turn research project. Eight, communication to the laboratories, most unusual of the dates of the control samples prior to testing. Nine, intercommunication of results among the three laboratories during the job. 10, disclosure to the media of the first results before the delivering of the findings. 11, <clears throat> refusal to publish raw results of the measurements. Um, 12, non-explanation of the unique isolation of the confidence interval of the measures performed by the Oxford Laboratory compared to those made by other laboratories. 
13, unacceptable value of 6.4 published in the journal Nature for the chi-square statistical test on the results of the radiocarbon dosage of, of the shroud. 14, rejection of any cross debate on the statistical measures performed. 15, rejection absolutely uncommon of the publication of the statistical expertise of this operation officially entrusted to Professor Bray of the G. Colonetti Institute of Turin. And um, uh, Carbone, De Carbone concluded, such a remark of deficiencies remains completely unusual in the context of a truly scientific debate, and one can only deplore this exception to the usual ethics. Um, so yeah. I, I was able to write an 800-page book on, on the numerous problems. Um, yeah, it's and called, what's the name of that book, by the way? It's yeah, called uh, The 1988 C14 Dating of the Shroud of Turin, a Stunning Exposé. Um, it's on Amazon, and it's uh, very reasonably priced. And um, I knew I wasn't going to be able to uh, fit everything in, well, um because more stuff would come out, more material. So I have a, um, a, a supplemental document on my academia page that has the overflow. Mm. And there's a link in the book that'll, that'll take you to that. Um, and I have like something like 80 additional entries that I, I, I added after the book was published. Um, it's you know, just that's one thing you know, uh, amazing. Yeah, it really is. But that's one thing I like about the uh, this whole shrouds, uh, the sciences and the studying of, of what goes on is that as new things come available, each one of these uh, each one of these pieces of information needs to be updated. And I really like that because it it, it is true. It is truly, you know, the science is, is almost living. And uh, and then to your point about your book and all of the the 80 new entries that you have it it really makes a big difference to keep that record new and fresh and mm -hmm. and and making sure that the science stays up with the you know the recent findings yeah yeah so um who uh, how were the the three labs uh, chosen because i i thought initially in the protocol there were going to be more than three labs how were they how were they weeded down to just the three was that also a kind of a last minute thing or how did that uh, take place um originally there were as many as seven at one point and of course they switched protocols left and right so then it, it kind of came down to about six and um the other three let's see would have been harwell in england brookhaven in the us rochester uh, brookhaven uh in the u.s and and harry gove's lab at rochester and um harwell and brookhaven were were the old the previous um uh, proportional counter method of c14 um which um required a larger piece mm. uh, a handkerchief size piece so they wanted they they lean toward AMS um, facilities because you could use a much smaller sample, and of course the three that they picked Arizona, Zurich, and Oxford were um, AMS labs. But it, it's important to note that that method was only really refined to the point where they they started doing tests um, 
in the late 70s, about 77. So the, the carbon dating was in 88. So the method was really only um, 11 years old when they did it. And even in that time period, they, they hadn't done that many datings on cloth. So it was, um, you can understand why they wanted to do it, doing just threads as opposed to, to bigger sections. But um, Harry Gove in Rochester, uh, he was the co-inventor of the AMS method. And um, he was, he had a lot of influence, influence in the, um, the dating with the labs that did do it. He managed to, he didn't, he didn't like STIRP. He thought they were a bunch of religious uh, nuts, you know, trying to prove the resurrection, which was not at all true. And then he had some, he locked horns with Ganella. And um, so one of the reasons Gove's lab didn't get get picked, I think, was because Ganella didn't like them. <laughs> so, so who it, says there's no personality? No, my gosh, there were so many <laughs> egos and politics and agendas and Machiavellian, Machiavellian, <laughs> um, you know, goings on. It it's just it's just mind boggling for what mm. what should have been the most important scientific test in history, and it was just bungled from mm. beginning to end. And let me, let me tell you another story that, that um, I can't remember if, if I might have it in my, my supplement. I don't think I knew about it at the time when my book was published, but Michael Kowalski, um, the, the editor of the British Society for the Turin Shroud newsletter, he's written a book, a very good book, and he's been on some podcasts. He told an interesting story on a, a podcast uh, recently that he was on in that um, Nature magazine that published the report. The the editor at the time was a guy by the name of John Maddox, and he was known to be militantly um, anti-Christian. And he um, he was a fellow of the the organization called the Committee for the Scientific investigation of claims of the paranormal. Um, I think they've changed their name to something shorter right now. I can't think of it off the top of my head. But anyway, um, in 1987, John Maddox was a fellow of that organization. And Carl Sagan was also um, a fellow of that organization. And in 1987, they published in one of their uh, magazines, I think it might have been the Skeptical Inquirer, maybe. Anyway, in, in the year before the carbon dating, they published a list of things that their organization uh, intended to debunk. Okay. And guess what was on that list in 1987? <laughs> the Shroud of Turin. <laughs> The report is published in Nature magazine, which John Maddox is the editor of. <laughs> um, Willie Wolfley was the head of the Zurich lab. And I've got a quote in my book where he says he was, this was the first time in his life that he was involved in a project in which 
a paper was was accepted before it was a draft was even submitted. You know, Maddox apparently heard or knew that the data was was showing at the time that it was putatively 1260 to 1390, which of course mm. him as a fellow of PSYCOP and, and an anti-Christian militant uh, would have been happy about. So, you know, people people tend to think that, oh, scientists are honest and this. there's a lot of dishonesty in science. And it's but when you come to the Shroud of Turin, which is a, an emotional subject and has implications for people's worldview and, and outlook on life. It's, it's to me, it's not surprising at all that people would try to manipulate the data to get a result that coincides with their worldview or whatever. So, I mean, you hate, you know, you don't, you don't want to make accusations, but once you start putting all the data down and listing all that went on, you can't help but think that, well, you know, look, look at what the yeah. actions, what they said and did, you know, and then make your own conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. And the, um, it was, uh, when I read your book, the, uh, carbon 14 dating, a stunning expose, and I, I have the title probably wrong. I was amazed at the politics and, and the mm -hmm. pettiness, yeah. uh, of different people, um, across the whole planning and the implementation yeah. and everything of the carbon dating. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in some respects, uh, you know, you could kind of say the, the killing of Jesus Christ was the greatest crime of all time, but <laughs> the greatest crime mm -hmm. in 1988 mm -hmm. was the, the carbon 14 dating, because there was clearly, uh, things it's not a crime necessarily, but, uh, over exaggerating, but, clearly things that were uh that were done uh in an inappropriate manner in a political manner in a petty manner and um and and it's really a shame when you think about what yeah. the what the what the what actually uh was what actually happened afterwards once that took place mm -hmm. because it really um it really uh slowed the scientific yes. study of the shroud immediately thereafter and it's only now as the truth and as the problems in the 17 that you mentioned from uh from professor carbone uh as those things are now coming out and becoming more more wide widely known that uh that that the shroud research is now mm -hmm. starting to take over again yeah and i'll tell you another uh interesting little story uh in terms of related to the the fact that uh, the of the 15 i read they said that the raw data um wasn't released and that's true it was only finally released in 2017 after tristan casabianca um of france filed a, a freedom of information act now um it, it why did it take that long to release it you you have to you know conclude that they were worried about there being data in there that looked look odd or suspicious. And um, once that data did come out, Tristan and uh, three other co Italian co-authors, including statisticians, found severe problems with the way that the labs um, compiled their statistics and then it, concluded with a 
mm. certainty that that the shroud dated to 1260 to 1390. So uh, a corollary to that that story is that um, in shortly after the C14 dating, Teddy Hall of the Oxford lab uh, retired from Oxford. And in March of 1989, so about five months after the dating, Hall retired and he, the Oxford lab received a 1 million pound donation from anonymous rich businessmen. <laughs> um, now, they didn't say it was for debunking the shroud, but that's been a suspicion by, by, by many people. Um, and guess who took Hall's place? It was Michael Tite from oh. the British Museum, who was supposed to be the independent overseer um, and by the way, Teddy Hall was on the uh, board of directors of the British Museum. So you kind of you got some conflicts of interest there. I think I, that doesn't prove that they were manipulating things necessarily, but it doesn't look good that um, there was that two way conflict of interest going mm. on. And then I asked Tristan in. Um, at a conference in Canada in 2019, I said to him, did you ever file a Freedom of Information Act to Oxford to get the, in, to get the names of the rich businessmen that made that one million pound donation? And he told me at the time that he had filed it at the same time in 2017 that he did the Freedom of Information Act to the British Museum about the raw data. And I checked with him within the last couple months. Not only has he not gotten any information on that, he has not even received a reply <laughs> that uh, to his request. So they've completely ignored it again. So why are they what hiding they this? Hide? What do they have yeah. to hide? Why are you not releasing yeah. this information? And I suspect that you know, if we see some of the names of those people, uh, people might be able to find some connections and make some connect some dots that might lead to more interesting. Um, yeah, connections. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know? So um, so we have the British Museum as kind of the organizer and the the they they do the summary of the results uh from each of the labs so the, each each of the labs got a sample they did their their dating they provided their results to the british museum and the british museum then is the one that uh, that summarized them and i guess published them and then it was uh what uh tristan casabianca did to get the freedom of information to finally get the actual raw data mm -hmm. from the british museum that was given to them from each of the different labs right and interestingly uh in that uh, list of 15 that I read by Carbone, uh, he mentioned the, the uh, an institute in turn called the G. Colonetti Institute. They were supposed to have gotten the same uh, data from the labs like the British Museum. But there was another change in the protocol. Only the <laughs> British Museum got the data. Then they say after they worked the data, they sent it to the Colonetti 
with their adjustments already done. And, mm. and, and so the, in other words, the Colinetti weren't able to, to analyze the data at the, to the degree that they would have been able to critique in the same way, the data. So mm. that's, that's also just very suspicious, I think. Yeah. Um, and I can't yeah. remember what, what the Colinetti, um, actually concluded, but they, they were kind of shoved to the side. The Pontifical Academy, Academy of Sciences was, was, uh, supposed to be involved and they were kind of pushed to the side. It was just, it was just one thing after another. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Um, it is really amazing in those 15 points. And then, you know, the Tristan Casabianca was able to get that, uh, information from the freedom of information uh, request that that is a that to me is a game changer when you finally see the stat statistics and how they they did that wrong not to mention everything else that was done wrong mm -hmm. as uh, professor carbone uh you know uh uh you know uh, pointed out mm -hmm. um we've got a break uh i i could go on i would love mm -hmm. talking about this stuff and uh and then certainly you know the carbon 14 dating the the to me, one of the greatest crimes uh, ever, mm. uh, you know, in terms of how badly that was done. Mm. And um, and then to your book as well, and pointing out the the politics and the politics and the pettiness and everything else that was going on behind the scenes was just uh, phenomenal. Um, anything else to talk about on, on that uh, quickly or uh, uh, and then we can uh, close it off. Mm. Well, it's like I. I probably uh i have a million things in my head when i get on these podcasts and i want to get this out and, and we only have an hour or whatever and that's why i, I kind of prefer as, as hard of the work it is to, to do an 800 page book because i can go at my pace and <laughs> recheck things and everything but anyway um yeah it's it's i really do um suggest to people to get that book um it's not a thing you're going to read from cover to cover in a couple nights. I mean, it's more of a reference book. Um, an, another uh, aspect to that is that if, if you buy the print book, if you're really interested in digging in, um, uh, I will offer, I will send people a free PDF of the book. So that'll supplement in the, what's mm. in the index. There is an index in the book, but if you want to uh, get the electronic copy, you want to look up, other things you can, you know, searching is much easier um, on an electronic copy. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting, and you know, I think we've we've made good inroads. It's taken like um, you know, thirty something years, thirty five years to to kind of get get most of the story out. And I and I always point out that you know, I I wrote the book and did the eighty additional entries in my supplement with with documents that I could get my hands on. Now, some of them are rare, I'll, I'll admit that. But I, I often think, gosh, if there's there's probably a ton of information that I don't even know about that, you know, if I knew about it, I might, you know, have a 1600 page book, who knows, <laughs> but uh, but there's plenty of evidence out there. If you if you want to dig into it, uh, check out the book and um, yeah. And uh, where can they reach you? Uh, what's what was your email again? My email is um, 
jmarino240 at aol.com. jmarino240 at aol.com. And I'll be happy to answer any questions and uh, give you the link to my academia page if you want that. Oh, I, I, I might also mention here, I have a weekly email uh, bulletin to which I send uh, people interested in the show the latest news and podcasts and videos and articles. I like keeping up on that. And I usually come up with um, six to 12 items a week, all year oh, round. It's more than that. <laughs> You've well, got more than that. It's just <laughs> incredible. How, and that's where, you know, the interest in the shroud is, is documented yeah. by how many different items that you have. There's, there are so many papers as well as mm -hmm. po uh, podcasts and videos and interviews and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So um, Joe, let's close it off there if you wouldn't mind. So jmarino240 sure. at gmail.com. jmarino240. Uh, so, no, AOL.com. At AOL, sorry. AOL.com. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And then otherwise to the audience, please stay tuned for other many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin and visit, please visit Guy Powell and sign up <clears> for more <throat> episodes. And if you have a, some suggestions as to topics or individuals you'd like me to uh, or us to interview, please let me know. And uh, Joe, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. It's always very interesting and uh, very educational. Thanks, Guy. I really appreciate the the, pot, the uh, video cast that you do. You have some great guests, and uh, it's a great service to uh, to the Shroud people that are interested in this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Okay, thank you.